David was hiding from Saul in a cave. Or it uh, may refer to the um, time when uh, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Or it may refer to the dedication of the temple, things like this. This psalm is sometimes called a royal psalm because it has obviously something to do with the king. Possibly it was used at the coronation of the Israel's, of Israelite king, or maybe just to commemorate their coronation. We don't know. But the basis of the psalm goes back to Samuel, the days of Samuel. Do you remember the time when uh, David said, uh, I want to build a house for the Lord. I've established my kingdom in Jerusalem, and I want to build a house for the Lord. And what did God say to him? You want to build a house for me? Oh, no. I am going to build a house for you. And your house will endure forever. Your sons will sit upon the throne, and I will adopt them as my sons. And God says to him, Your house, your kingdom, shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Hence the reference in the psalm to the the king as God's son. Now, a number of people have uh, told us uh, that we can see four voices in the psalm, and I think it would be helpful for us to look at it like that. And the first one is, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The voice of the nations around. Nations hostile to David and his successors, hostile to Jerusalem. And then there is the voice of, of God himself, God's response. The one enthroned in the heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's response. And then there's the voice of the king. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with a rod of iron, dash them to pieces like pottery. The voice of the king. And then there is the voice of the psalm writer, the psalmist. He has a comment. It's the voice of wisdom, a voice of warning. Be warned, you kings, be wise, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up like a moment. And then the last sentence, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And, uh, well, we're not told about the exact setting, but we can well imagine that for the Israelites, when the psalm was written, this had a place uh, in their national life, at coronations, perhaps at burials. But, you know, it wasn't long before they began to realize that the, the words of this psalm could not possibly be fulfilled completely in a mere human being. 
And so over the years it came to be understood that this was referring to the one that God was going to send, the Messiah. And so it was known as a messianic psalm. This was long before Jesus came and it was in common with Jesus and the Jews, the Jewish leaders at that time. That's how they saw this psalm. And uh, Jesus would have pointed this out to his disciples. Do you remember after his resurrection? It says he unfolded the Old Testament to them, pointing out everything. That, this was one of the Psalms. And as I say, it was quoted seven times in the New Testament of Jesus the Messiah. I don't think there's any clearer um, example of this than in the prayer meeting that we read about in Acts chapter 4. Now, we've been having this series in chapter 4, and you'll remember this very well, how that when the disciples were told, you're not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus, just shut up, be quiet. So they go back and they have a prayer meeting. And in this prayer meeting, they start off and they they say, Sovereign Lord, maker of heaven and earth, and they, they realize, they remind themselves of the greatness of the Lord, just like there is in this psalm, when uh, it says the, the Lord laughs and scoffs at those who rebel. Sovereign Lord, maker of heaven and earth. Then they say, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through David. Not just David's word, they say. These were your words from the Old Testament. And then they quote exactly the first two verses of the psalm. We should have them there. Sorry, we've, we've, uh, we've gone wrong here. The first two or three verses of the psalm. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord. <laughs> Lord, this is exactly what's happened. We've seen it, Lord. We saw how Herod and Pilate and the leaders of the Jews and the people, they all conspired to put Jesus to death. We saw it. It's come true. And then they say, now, Lord, you see, they're still conspiring. You see their threats against us. They're telling us to keep quiet, not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And they ask for courage. They don't say we're going to keep quiet and please excuse us. They say, Lord, give us the courage to go on and speak boldly. And they, wasn't, they weren't quoting the psalm because it was, uh, well, appropriate. It seemed to put into words their situation. They were quoting the psalm because it was their experience of God's work. This is what God said would happen. This is what's happening in our time now. What you said by the Holy Spirit through David, we are experiencing Sing now. God's word for Israel. God's word for the early church. But you know, these, this psalm is not exhausted by AD 33. This is a psalm for us today. And uh, I want us to look at it in terms of these four voices. Let's see if I can get the first one. There we are. The voice of the world. This is God's word for us now. What do we see 
in our world today? Well, there are parts of the world where people are clearly very hostile to God and his word. There are believers who are beaten up fairly regularly these days, believers who are falsely accused and put in prison, believers who have lost their lives for the sake of Jesus. There is quite violent hostility in some parts of our world. But in our own culture, I'm not going to go on a long time about this, but in our own culture, we are also seeing people, as uh, one of the translations has it, why do the people rage? We're actually seeing in our own country today people who are raging against God and against the Bible. They are angry. They are abusive. You might even have met one or two, perhaps at work or in other places. But there are people like this. Uh, One man has said, God is like a psychotic delinquent invented by mad, deluded people. That's not an argument. That's abuse. And that's what we have today. And uh, although there have been some very good books written contesting the arguments of what we call today the new atheists, those men are not paying any attention to them whatsoever, but they continue to abuse. In fact, uh, one of them had on his website for a little while, he's taken it down now, but he had on his website, the best way of handling the situation is to treat these people with contempt. Nobody likes to be laughed at and we'll treat them with contempt. And that man is a university academic. You call that an argument? That's rage against God, a rage against his Bible. Uh, Darren reminded us two or three weeks ago that Jeremy Paxton had to be rebuked by the BBC governors for some things that he'd said about Genesis and those who believe in creation. If you defend the traditional view of marriage on the internet in some of the discussions, you will find that you will not just be written off, you will be despised as ignorant, hateful, and worse. And because it's all anonymous on the internet, the abuse is really quite unbridled at times. But, well, more gently perhaps, there is in our culture more general indifference to God and to his word. Our desires, our thoughts, our ideas. We want to do our own thing. We don't need an old book to tell us what to do. We've come of age. We're grown up. We're clever enough, wise enough. And we don't need God. And we certainly don't need to be ruled by him. For they think of God wanting to make people his slaves instead of understanding that he's the one that made us and created us and now how best the world can go, they think of that God wants to make us slaves. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. And even basic, uh, apparently decent, reasonable neighbors, fellow workers... Family members, employers, they don't think of God from one week to the next. But you start bringing God into the conversation and uh, often some sort of hostility will show up. Try and attempt to show that we are accountable to God. That God our maker has a claim upon us. There's nothing wrong with me. I lead a decent life. Don't talk to me about God. I don't have any need of him. 
if there's a God, why does he allow and some, something comes out? If there is a God, why didn't he stop that happening to me? Some hold a grudge against God over something that he has done or hasn't done. Let's not be surprised by hostility towards God and the Bible and incidentally to us. It's always been the case. It was in the case a thousand years before Jesus. It was there in the days of Jesus and uh, it's here today. Men and women don't like the revealed God of the Bible by nature. But then there is also the voice of God. God's response. How does he respond to this kind of attitude? Well, it says God laughs. He's untroubled. He's unworried. God isn't wondering, what on earth am I going to do with this situation? It doesn't touch him in that sense. He laughs. Not in the sense that he wants to provoke us to anger. He's not sneering at us. But uh, picture a five-year-old fighting with his dad. Sometimes the five-year-old can get quite fierce. But is his dad worried? Ah, he can't hurt his dad. He can contain all that violence. Uh-huh. That's how we are before the greatness of God. There's that remarkable chapter in Isaiah 40 where it uh, talks about the power, the knowledge and the wisdom of God. And they, they go on to say, the nations are like a, a drop from a bucket before him. And then it says, look to the heavens. Who created all these? Do you remember what we saw about the Hubble, the telescope on the stream? Was it last week? Things that we had never seen before. The amazing extent of the universe. Who created all these? This is our God. This is the God that we think we can shake our fist at as if it made any difference to him. We can't hurt God. Thanks. Is right? Actually, I'm using this one. Is that all right? Okay. Anyway, we can't hurt God. We can't spite God. We can't get back at him. I remember as a little boy being upset about something and strutting down the garden and saying, God, if you don't do this for me, I'm not going to believe in you anymore. (laughs) How utterly daft. And yet uh, men and women sometimes are tempted to do a very similar thing. We can't negotiate with God. We can't get him to make adjustments to suit our demands. God is great. God is supreme. God is glorious. One day we we will be absolutely amazed at the being of God if we're not amazed now. He's just. He's all-knowing. All-wise. Nothing he can't handle. All-powerful. So often we think of God as a kind of superior human being. 
but he's not like us. He's the one enthroned in heaven. How foolish to take umbrage, to hold a grudge against God. My thoughts are not your thoughts, he said, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, and we're beginning to realize exactly how high they are, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There is none greater than God. God is the one who is enthroned in the heavens. Notice it talks about his anger and his displeasure. His anger is not like our emotional anger. It's not vindictive. He doesn't seek revenge or compensation. Although God does take account of the nations of the world, their behavior is not indifferent to him. The time of God's final anger is not yet. Today, his voice is one of mercy for the nations. Despite the hostility and the indifference, his goodness leads people to repentance. These these are days of God's mercy. There is coming a day of reckoning, a day of judgment. You may disagree, so I don't agree with that. Well, then you have to disagree with the Bible and you have to disagree with our Lord Jesus himself who warned us that there is coming a day of judgment. Paul said we will all stand before God's judgment seat and no one will be able to answer him back then when we see him for what he is. But now is the time of grace time of mercy. And it says too that his purposes cannot be thwarted. What does he say in answer? (laughs) He says, I have set my king upon Zion, my holy hill. I've done it. You can't do anything about it. His purposes cannot be thwarted. You notice at that prayer meeting in the Acts of the Apostles, that's exactly what they said again. He said, we noticed how they they took counsel together against your son. And then they say, but this was exactly what your power and will had decided beforehand to do. And Peter in his sermon at Pentecost had said, you crucified him. You are responsible for that. But they said, this was God's set purpose and foreknowledge. In other words, They thought they've got him now. They thought we've got him on a cross. We've nailed him to the cross. We've done away with him. And God, can we say it? God was laughing. He said, the very thing that I intended that you have done in your anger, my purpose cannot be thwarted. We read in Psalm 33, the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart stand through all generations. So this is what it has to tell us 
about the voice of God. Then the voice of King Jesus. Both at his baptism and his transfiguration, you remember, there was a voice that declared that Jesus was God's son. And then God raised him from the dead. And talking about the resurrection, the Apostle Paul quotes these very words that you see there. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And Paul says the resurrection was the time when God publicly declared what had been true all along, that Jesus was his son. Again, God's purposes stood. The nations are his inheritance, it says. He's not just interested in Jews, God's people in the Old Testament. He's concerned for Gentiles, too. People throughout the world, as he promised to Abraham. Jesus told his disciples that Gentiles would benefit from him as well as Jews. Jesus said he would build his church and he's building it amongst the nations, every tribe, every people, every tongue, every nation. And as with God, so with Jesus, King Jesus, his purpose will not fail. This verse 9 is very interesting. Looks a bit fierce, doesn't it? He will rule them with a rod of iron. Well, that speaks about his authority and his invincibility. No one will stand, nothing will stand before him. <clears throat> it's said that the, the kings of old, uh, before they went to war, would sometimes inscribe upon a clay pot the names of their enemies and perhaps their commanders as well. And then he would smash the pot. And he said, this is what I'm going to do to my enemies. And they take this picture, showing that Jesus is going to be the great conqueror. No one will be able to withstand him. You know, this is made very clear in the New Testament and made especially clear in Revelation. Three times in Revelation, you will rule them with a rod of iron, is quoted. And what's the setting of Revelation? Well, you have these churches, little churches, persecuted by Jewish synagogues, in themselves insignificant. They're persecuted from time to time by Roman governors. They're troubled by informers. They're beset by uh, heretical groups and sometimes groups advocating immoral behavior. All of these things beset them and they seem so powerless and so insignificant. And uh, what is the message of Revelation? The message of Revelation is that these churches, God's people, however insignificant they may seem, are going to reign with Jesus. And that Jesus is going to prevail. He will conquer all. No force, however powerful, will be able to stand against them. What encouragement for us today. When the church is under attack from surrounding culture, from our persecuting enemies overseas, and 
sometimes we ask, well, what is going to happen? What will happen to us? And we're reminded that the will of the Father and the will of the Son will prevail. I have installed my King on Zion, my holy hill, he says. And he did. Despite the fiercest hostility that they could raise against Jesus. You will rule them with an iron scepter, meaning all the powers, all the governments, all the nations will be brought to nothing. Remember the old hymn, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. That's true. Every knee shall bow, said Paul, and they will bow willingly or unwillingly before Jesus the King. We may mourn about certain things happening in our country. We may be concerned about the persecuted church overseas, but ultimately we are on the winning side. In the present, nothing can separate us from the love of God towards us in Jesus. And for the future, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus will prevail. That's why Paul says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now we must hurry on. Now's the voice of wisdom. The voice of the psalmist is a kind of commentator, isn't he? It's the voice of the Holy Spirit. It's uh, God speaking to us today. Here comes sound advice, a warning in view of all that has been said, you kings, you rulers, you rebellious people, give up your hostility. Come to terms with King Jesus. Be wise. Change your thinking. Serve and rejoice with honor and respect. That's a matter of the heart. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Used to puzzle at that. But they tell me that in the British Museum there is a relief showing some Elamite rulers coming to the king of Nineveh and kissing the ring on his hand. A kiss of submission. Give up your rebellion. The kiss of submission. Even Christians can have rebellious thoughts. Give up your rebellion. And do it now while you can. As we were saying just now, today is the time of mercy. The opportunity may pass quickly. What does it say? His wrath can flare up in a moment. The opportunity for us as an individual, the opportunity for the nations may pass quickly. There is a day of wrath coming and it is inescapable because it is the wrath of God. You notice how it finishes. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Someone has said, there is no refuge from him in the day of judgment, but there is refuge in him. 
How do we make our peace with God? Well, we, we stop our rebellion, our personal rebellion and aggro. We repent. We ask forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Kiss the Son. We come to him and we ask forgiveness in his name because he died that sinners might be forgiven. That's precisely why he died. The Jews thought he died because of their hostility. But God planned that he should die in order to die for sin, for the guilt of sinners. We take him as our King and Lord, mind, heart, and will. We drop our rebellion. We ask forgiveness. We take him as our King and Lord can't do anything of ourselves to avoid God's judgment. But you see, this psalm emphasizes to us God's greatness and God's judgment and our insignificance. But it also opens the door for us to understand something of God's mercy at the same time. Jesus, God's Son, suffered and the penalty of our sin fell upon him. He took the wrath of God in order that we might be forgiven. And when we turn to him, as I've just said, lay down your rebellion, trust him for forgiveness, and take him as your king and lord, all our guilt is taken away because it descended on him like to finish with a simple story. It's told by William Golliker, who is a British minister now serving in the United States. And he describes how he and his young son were trying to put out a grass fire. I don't know whether they were hitting it with uh, their coats or whether they had brooms or what it was, but there they were in front of the fire, banging away and trying to put it out and the wind kept blowing it towards them, and the smoke was getting in their eyes, and they weren't getting anywhere. And suddenly he realized, he grabbed his son, and he ran and he jumped over the flames to where the, the fire had already been. So the fire wasn't burning there anymore, it had already consumed all the grass. So they were perfectly safe, they weren't troubled by the fire anymore. And there from behind, they could attack the fire. And he says... There's no refuge from him, but there is refuge in him. And that's what you do when you come to Jesus and you ask for refuge. It's like going where the fire has already burned, where the wrath of God has already fallen, and we are safe in him. That's the ultimate message of this psalm. We've talked about the greatness of God the glory of our Lord Jesus, but the word of wisdom and the word of glory at the end is that we are safe when we take refuge in him.